celebrate, good things are happening. Also, things happen that we wouldn't want to have happen. Uh, this past week, uh, we lost a member of our family, member of our church here, uh, Rick Stevenson, passed away on Tuesday morning. It kind of a shock to all of us. Uh, Rick is a part of our worship team, plays the banjo, uh, has played the banjo, and uh, we'll have a memorial service for Rick where we will get to celebrate his life. Uh, Rick's in a, as good a place as you could possibly be. He's with the Lord. Uh, but his family's left behind, and that's just what that is. That, you know, that's a lot of sadness, and they're going to deeply, deeply miss him, just as we are going to miss Rick. But if you can join us uh, this Friday at 11, uh, we'll have a memorial service right here. And, um, and pray for Cody and his sons, uh, Jake. Jake's a member of the Denver Police Department, just like Rick was, and uh, his other son, Ben, and, uh, and extended family. But uh, we're going to miss them. Um, but, you know, the scriptures make it very clear that, that when we uh, go from this life to the next, we don't mourn or grieve in the same way that people without a hope because we have a hope in Jesus. So, so pray with me. Father God, we, uh, we gather here this morning to worship you, and uh, we are thankful to be able to do so. And we want this time of our worship, this time where we think and reflect together around your word, we want, we want to hear from you, God. So speak to us, each one, as uh, you are able to. May your spirit and your word convict and encourage uh, and direct our thoughts, for we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen? Well, uh, this morning we're going to begin a new series, and the title of this series is Deadly Misconceptions. Uh, it's about the identity of God. The fact is, all of us have certain misconceptions when it comes to our ideas about God. Uh, we think uh, at different times, uh, probably all of us have thought of God or felt God to be distant. Uh, we think that God uh, sometimes perhaps is not kind. Uh, maybe we think that God is not interested in the details of our lives, what's going on day to day. <clears throat> Sometimes we think of God as just a good old boy, you know. Uh, God is love, nothing else. Well, that would be slightly wrong. Um, or we think of God as being angry, being vengeful. Uh, and we are kind of put off a little bit by some of the things that we read about God. Or he's petty, or he's cruel, or he's judgmental. You get the idea. And uh, there are all kinds of misconceptions that people have, and I would say even nurture, about God. Uh, these misconceptions can actually be deadly, spiritually speaking. If they keep us from knowing him, if they keep us uh, at a distance from him, they're actually harming us, spiritually speaking. Because what I need and what you need more than anything else in life is to know God. Jesus one time was praying to the Father, and he kind of made reference to this. He, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, he says to his heavenly Father, that they may know you, the only true God. And he puts himself in this, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Long life, eternal life, abundant life, life filled with satisfaction, life filled with purpose, Happiness in life, I would say, all depend on knowing God. And by knowing God, of course, I mean really knowing the real God, not just having some vague, fuzzy misconception of him. Um, misconceptions, as I said, can be deadly. There are a lot of ideas that are kind of floating around out there, 
ideas about who God is, ideas about what God is like, what God does or doesn't do. There's a guy named Gary Larson. I used to love his cartoons. He doesn't do them anymore, but the Far Side cartoons, you remember those? Uh, he often expressed ideas about God. Uh, one of his ideas is uh, in this cartoon. This is God sitting at a computer, and he's got his finger right above the smite button. This gentleman that he's uh, looking in on happens to be walking down a sidewalk. He's not very cognizant of much else going on, but there happens to be this suspended giant piano just above his head. And, you know, Gary Larson's uh, kind of asking the question here, is this what God is really like? Does he hit the smite button, smash, you know, the guy's dead? Is that what God does? Does God just want to smite people? You know, this idea gets expressed sometimes in other odd sorts of ways. Some of you will be aware of the fact that in the insurance business, there's an expression, if a destructive act of some kind happens, an earthquake, a hurricane, a tsunami, a tornado, and it just devastates a town, devastates a neighborhood, they will be called what? Acts of God. That's very interesting. But other natural events like tropical breezes, beautiful, you know, summer sunsets or evening uh, I'm sorry, summer morning sun rises and evening sunsets, a, a nice uh, spring rain or an early uh, winter snowfall. We don't call those acts of God. We only attribute destructive acts to God for some reason. How do you think he feels about that? I imagine uh, he probably doesn't like that. There's, there's this idea out there that God must be kind of mean. God's kind of angry, perhaps. God is destructive, that that's the kind of God he is. Sometimes these get articulated very deliberately. All of you have uh, perhaps heard of Richard Dawkins. At, once, uh, at one point in time, he was a professor at Oxford. He's not any longer. He's kind of a traveling evangelical atheist. Uh, he's an evolutionary biologist, and he believes very, very strongly that religion, all religions are very bad, but he also believes very particularly that Christianity and the God of the Bible is very, very bad. He wrote in a book called The God Delusion. This is a quote that often gets lifted out of the book because it kind of tells you what he thinks about God. But this is what he wrote. <clears throat> he said, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. It's kind of nasty. Makes you wonder if he has a bit of an anger problem, doesn't it? <laughs> but let's be honest, it's not just atheists who wonder about God. People seeking religious truth also wonder. Even followers, as we read through uh, parts of the Bible, uh, there are these stories where God apparently commands Israel, for example, to just wipe out all of their enemies. And it kind of catches us off guard a little bit. For example, 1 Samuel 15, uh, the Israelites are told, go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Gulp? Whew. Wow, okay, uh, pretty thorough. Or we read things like uh, in Exodus 21, it kind of gives us a flavor of the justice of God. It says, but if there is a serious injury among you, is what he's saying, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. In other words, no timeouts, you see? 
What you perpetrate on another is what you're going to get in response. Thoughtful people wonder when you read passages like these, what exactly is this about? Uh, How do I understand passages like this? And truthfully, if you don't do some digging, you could arrive at all kinds of deadly misconceptions about God. It could lead you to believe some very wrong things about him and consequently not want to know him or not want to get to know him better, wanting to keep a distance between yourself and God. And that, my friends, would be terribly poor, bad, awful for you, spiritually speaking. Because actually, as we're going to discover, as we get near the end of this message, this is a God who actually loves you. You don't want to live with a deadly misconception. Now, I would suggest that your ideas about God are the most important ideas you have. In fact, hope, life's meaning, largely depend upon your view of God. Uh, Your peace, personal peace in life, your perseverance through difficulties or trials or what have you, largely depend on your view of God, your ideas about God. Do things that happen in this world have a purpose? Will broken things ever get fixed? Will righteousness ever actually conquer evil, all the evil in the world? Is someone ultimately in control? And, you know, if there is someone in control, is that somebody who can be loved and and be trusted? Your answers to questions like this all depend on your ideas about God. That's how important this is. If you think there is a God, but you're pretty convinced he's a bully, you'll never trust him, let alone love him or surrender your life to him. That won't happen. And yet that is what should happen. So over the next couple of weeks, I think what we're going to be talking about is not only very relevant, there's actually a lot at stake. And so I would ask you to be praying with me that God would speak to all of our hearts. Bring your visitors, if there's not a Bronco game, bring your visitors and uh, you know, your friends who might be interested in some of these and might even, might even hold to some of these deadly misconceptions. You know, I mean, is God petty and legalistic? A lot of people think so. Is he judgmental? That's the opinion of many. Is he distant? Is he cold-hearted? These are some of the questions that we'll be diving into. This morning, we're going to look at the question of anger. Is God an angry God? Is that his general posture or position as it relates to you and as it relates to me? He's just kind of angry at us, seeing us do the wrong things over and over and over and over. You know, if you've read the Bible much, you will have uh, seen some statements that actually talk about the anger of God. The Old Testament tells us, for example, and I quote, the Lord's anger burned against, and then you fill in the blank. Moses is one. The Lord's anger burned against Moses. Israel is another. Another phrase is the people. The Lord's anger burned against the people. And uh, it's always because they have been disobedient in some fashion or form. Uh, And so we read uh, in some places, Because God's anger burned towards Israel, they wandered in the desert for how long? In the wilderness? 40 years. In another place, God's anger burned toward the people and he brought a plague upon them. Thousands and thousands of them died. Pretty serious stuff. Uh, People like Job say about evildoers, and I'll just quote him, Job 4.9, it says, at the breath of God, they are destroyed, evildoers. At the blast of his anger, they perish. I mean, these are straightforward statements about God being angry, God acting out in anger. And part of what makes this whole discussion, I think at least interesting, uh, is that the Bible also talks a lot about human beings and our anger. 
And what's so uh, fascinating is that generally speaking, the anger of a human being is condemned. It's not a good thing to be angry as a human being. People shouldn't get angry. Ecclesiastes 7.9 says, do not be quickly provoked in your spirit for anger resides in the lap of fools. You want to be a fool? Be angry. Be controlled by anger. The apostle Paul says to a group of people at a church in Ephesus many, many years ago, he says, in your anger, do not sin. And we'll come back to this idea later. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. You wanna give the devil, the evil one, a foothold in your life to affect you and the people around you? Well, just hold on to anger day after day, after day after day. Well, one very important uh, idea in the Bible is simply this, that anger as God experiences it is very different than the anger that you and I experience. Let me kind of develop this idea. When you think about it, humanly speaking, what happens to you when you get angry? Actually, a bunch of stuff happens to us when we get angry. Our muscles clench when we get angry. Uh, They tense up. Your blood pressure rises when you get angry. Your heart rate accelerates. You have these neurotransmitters that give you a surge of energy, a burst of adrenaline that even gives you extra strength and uh, extra energy to Scream, yell, pound, whatever you do when you're angry. These are all things that actually happen to our body. For human beings, you see, anger is intrinsically tied uh, to the physicality of who we are, to our bodies. It's a bodily sensation. And the angrier we get, the more our bodies get taken over by anger. We talk about people losing it. Have you ever lost it? Or we talk about people melting down. Have you ever melted down? I probably shouldn't ask you. I should ask somebody close to you who's maybe witnessed this kind of thing happening. You know, the part of our brain that's associated with emotions, it's called the amygdala. And uh, there's a little phrase describing someone who just goes crazy, who melts down or who loses it. It's called an amygdala hijack. There's actually uh, uh, that medical reference, an amygdala hijack. The amygdala hijacks the whole central nervous system if we let it. And when that happens, a person becomes incapable of rational thought. There are actually defenses in a courtroom around this concept of the amygdala hijack. Uh, There's kind of a superhero, a weird character. He experiences tremendous bodily transformation whenever he gets angry. Who am I talking about? Yeah, the Hulk, the big green Hulk, right? Now, uh, when he's a normal guy, he's Dr. Bruce Banner, just as quiet mild-mannered guy. He'll even say to people, don't make me angry. You won't like me when I'm angry. And he's right. You wouldn't like him. Now, back up. Go back to the ancient world. When people thought about gods, they thought of them kind of like superheroes, a little bit like the Hulk. The gods had superpowers. They could do things that human beings couldn't do. They all also were very fallible characters. If they got mad watch out. You wouldn't like them if they were angry at you. You've uh, perhaps heard stories about Greek gods like Zeus or Poseidon or Hera or Ares. These folks had anger problems. And a lot of times sacrifices and things of that nature, things that would be offered to these gods, they were done for the simple reason of hoping that the gods would not become angry at you. Uh, You did not want to make the gods angry. But in the Bible, Now, regardless of what you think about the Bible, 
you need to understand that the Bible portrays God in a certain light. The Bible makes the claim that God's anger is very, very different than your anger or mine. Primarily because God is perfect. He never sins. God is never mean. Not in what he thinks, not in what he does. Also, too, because God is spirit. Uh, we're told in the Bible that God doesn't have a body. And what that means is uh, God never melts down. God never loses it. God's heart rate never races. His blood pressure never rises. He doesn't have a body. He never experiences the amygdala hijack because he doesn't have a body. Humanly speaking, anger is a very deep part of our bodily experience. In the Old Testament, this is captured in kind of a colorful way. Uh, in the Old Testament, the word for anger uh, is actually off and uh, literally translated, that's the word for nose. The word for anger is the word for nose. And when we read the word anger in the Old Testament, that's actually literally what it's talking about. It's talking about a person's nose. And there's a certain logic to this, actually. When you get angry at somebody, what happens? Well, your nostrils, your nose kind of flares up. I mean, if you're starting to lose it, it becomes obvious. Yeah, the nostrils flare. You raise your nose in contempt. I'm really ticked at you, you know, kind of a thing. Your face gets red. Blood collects there. And uh, the really important anger phrase in the Old Testament that we'll run across several times is slow to anger. You know what that literally translates, how it literally translates? Long nose, the longer nose you have. So when you see that phrase in the Bible, to be slow to anger, literally it's talking about to be long nosed. And this phrase is used a number of times to describe God, slow to anger or long nosed, right? God is described many times as slow to anger. That's actually central to his character. It's actually a name that God takes to himself. When God reveals himself to Moses, for example, in Exodus 34, this is what we read. It says, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, long nose, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's part of God's essential character, you understand. So much so it's part of his name. This little phrase, slow to anger, is used seven times in the Old Testament to describe God. And every single time it's used, it's always paired up with that other phrase that we saw just following. He is abounding in love. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. They go together. And uh, that's the God of the Bible. In other words, the God of the Bible, the Bible declares, is not a mean God. He is not irritable. He does not fly off the handle. He is slow to anger, abounding in love. And if we're going to be honest, that leads to an obvious question. Well, why then, especially in the Old Testament, uh, does God seem to get mad and fly off the handle? Right? That's kind of the obvious question. And I thought we'd just look at a text that often gets understood exactly that way. It's kind of a weird anger text. Uh, and my hope is that we will see that context, in particular cultural context, is necessary to help us understand these stories correctly. So it's important, in other words, to dig a little bit. Uh, it's really important when you read the Bible, whether you believe it's inspired or not, to assume that it's written by intelligent people, people at least as intelligent as you and me. And in this case, these people, you understand, believe that God 
is slow to anger. That's why it's said over and over in the Old Testament. So in this particular story that we're going to look at, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 6, the Ark of the Covenant is being returned to the city of Jerusalem. The Israelites have won it back from the Philistines who had taken it earlier. And there's this big parade, this huge celebration going on. There are 30,000 or more, actually, people watching this procession. And the Ark has been put on a cart, which is being drawn by two oxen. And it's being guided by Uzzah and his brother Ahio. And uh, then this weird thing happens. We'll read it. It says, they set the ark of God on a new cart and they brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and with harps and with lyres and with tambourines and sistrums and cymbals. Anybody know what a sistrum is? I had to look it up. I didn't know. I thought sistrum, what is that? It's actually a little shaker thing uh, that had metal pieces on it. So it was like a, just a noisemaker, really. You know, it was like a noisemaker. So there's all this noise, all this song, all this celebration, all this dancing taking place. And it says, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down, smite, and he died there beside the ark of God. And then David was angry. Because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah, the wrath of God on Uzzah. Now, this is a weird kind of story, actually, that we read in the Bible. And it's puzzling. And we think, what in the world is going on with this? I mean, also, it, you read it and you think, Uzzah should be committed, right? He kept the ark from falling onto the ground there. Why would God smite him? And again, this story is being told by people who understood that God is slow to anger and abounding in love. So we need a little cultural context to get this. In the Old Testament, there were really clear instructions, you understand, on how the ark was supposed to be transported. Uh, and the Israelites reading this story would know all about this. These instructions were repeated multiple times in the Old Testament. Uh, the ark was a box of sorts, probably looks something like this representation. It held the Ten Commandments, copies of the, or the Ten Commandments. It held a, uh, there was a golden box with some manna in it, because that was just a, a reminder of God's constant provision for them for the 40 years wandering in the desert, in the wilderness. Uh, it also contained Aaron's rod, which budded miraculously, one of the uh, things that happened in the deliverance out of Egypt. And uh, it had gold rings, as you see on the side. And through those gold rings, you would you push poles, and the poles were actually for carrying the ark. And priests, only priests, were supposed to carry those poles, and they would take those poles, and they would put them up on their shoulder. That way, the ark is elevated for all to see. It was a place of honor. Now, a lot of logic, a lot of, a lot of reasoning going in this. The ark, you see, because it held the Ten Commandments, because it held the manna, because it had Aaron's rod in it, it was representative of God's presence. Israel didn't think the ark was God, but they knew it represented his presence. The ark, again, you understand, is the most sacred object in all of Israel. So how they treated the ark was, in essence, how they were treating God. And again, in their culture, in the ancient world, a king, when a king would go from one place to another in some formal type of procession, 
Most often that king was placed upon what was called a litter. This was a, a throne type seat that had poles on the side that would be picked up and put on the shoulders of noblemen or servants who were close. It was an honor to get to do this, to be that close to the king and to be able to transport the king. And this way the king is elevated. He is honored among the people. Um, that was a way to teach the people how to honor him, how to elevate, how to give glory to the king. The king traveled on his throne. You would never, ever, ever take a king, place him on a cart, and have a couple of oxen pull him. That would actually be insulting. To make things worse, the whole reason that Israel had lost the Ark of the Covenant in the first place was that many years ago, they had mistreated it. Years earlier, they went into battle against the Philistines, and they were thinking of God kind of like he was an idol, and they thought to themselves, you know what? Let's take the ark with us. That'll be good luck. We'll really kick their butts if we have the ark with us. God will have to help us. He won't be able to not help us. They were actually trying to manipulate God, to get God to do for them what they wanted him to do, right? And you know, it's, it's at this point in the story, if you understand it, kind of like I'm describing, you start to scratch your head and you go, well, wait a minute. This story might actually be speaking to me about practices that I've developed around ways I handle God. Um, now, God chooses to teach Israel a very painful lesson in this instance. They're actually, they take this ark into battle. They are defeated. And the Philistines capture the ark, this sacred item that reminds them of the presence of God. Now the Philistines have it. You see, God is letting them learn that he is not under their control. He will not be manipulated. You cannot think of him as being put in a box. This relationship that he has with Israel, it's not superstition, it's not religion. They are not to deal with him like he is some idol in a box. That's what God is teaching them. So, you know, this is the occasion that we have now when the ark is coming back to Israel. Over 30,000 people are gathered watching this. And the question still is, will the people listen to God? Will they trust him? Will they obey him and do what his word says to do? So, you know, how is the ark going to be treated? How is it going to be handled? And sadly, once again, the ark is being treated exactly like it's an object of idolatry. They're repeating the same sin all over again. God's not being trusted. He's not being obeyed. He's not being dealt with and loved like you would deal with a trustworthy God whose words should be paid attention to and obeyed. This whole story, when you understand it, as I said, it starts to challenge us, doesn't it? It starts to make me think about ways that I treat God, the way I put him in a box, the way I try to manipulate him, get him to do what I want him to do. It's like the tables are turned on me when I start to understand the dynamics of this story. Do I listen to God? Do I trust him? When he talks to me about my finances or about my relationships or about forgiving others who've uh, perhaps hurt me in some, I mean, do I listen to him or do I just want to deal with him in ways that are comfortable for me? Do I handle them in just any old way I want? Do I put them on a cart, you know? <laughs> that would have probably been an insult 
in that culture and in that context. You see, understanding culture really helps us. It really matters. But we still have the question, the problem, if you will, of Uzzah and what happened there with Uzzah. Wasn't God being a little heavy-handed? Was he a little over the top in handling Uzzah? I mean, couldn't he have just given him a timeout? Okay, Uzzah, you don't get to dance and celebrate. You go off over there and sit on the side and you just, you just think about what you did, you know. You know, really to understand what's going on here, we probably have to reflect for a second on this thing of death. God and death. You know, for us, death seems like the worst possible outcome, right? We see death as the end of everything, the worst thing that could possibly happen to us in any given situation. I mean, the Bible does say, you know, as far as the way we treat each other, thou shalt not kill. Killing someone is, of course, the ultimate hostility. If I kill someone, I'm really wishing them not to exist, right? But understand, death to God does not mean that he wishes someone not to exist. To God, death is simply a relocation. And it can even be a a homecoming relocation, which it probably was for Uzzah. Even foolish old Uzzah who wasn't listening, who wasn't obeying, if his heart indeed belonged to God, well, this was actually a relocation for him. This was a homecoming for Uzzah. We don't often look at or think about it quite that way. Um, But this is terribly important. As you read through the Bible, as you read these Old Testament stories, you must believe if God is truly by nature slow to anger and abounding in love, then he does in life and in death the absolute best that can be done for any human being. That's who our God is. That's what the writers of the Old Testament tell us. This is why Jesus loved the God of the Old Testament so much. You see, Jesus in no way understood God to be an angry God, a mean God. In fact, he understood God to be loving. That was his understanding of God. This idea of a loving God, that was not a common notion for the human race, understand. For example, nobody thought of Baal or Moloch or Chemosh or Zeus, the Greek gods, what have you. Nobody thought of any of those gods as being loving gods. That idea of a loving God, that idea originated in this little bitty gathering of people, this small nation known as Israel. And then that idea of there being a loving God spread through the world through a rabbi of Israel, namely Jesus Himself, that's where that idea came from. Nowhere else. Sometimes people will say, you know, I like the God of love that Jesus described, but not the God of the Old Testament. I'll tell you who would never, ever say that, let alone think it. Jesus, you see. Because he had no deadly misconceptions about who God was. And here's the deal. Jesus got all of his information about his heavenly father from the Old Testament. The New Testament, of course, hadn't been written. So the Old Testament, where it says things like, you shall have no other gods before me, Jesus didn't. He loved his heavenly Father. And later on, that commandment was expanded uh, into something that became very beautiful and often repeated in the Jewish worship, and that's Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength. 
And part of why Israel loved this commandment is that it talked about a God who wants to be loved, a God who wants that kind of relationship with us. What an amazing thought that God wants to be loved. Jesus constantly taught that, by the way. And this is really important, a really important thing when we think about love and when we think about anger. You know, the opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is actually malice. Malice is the will to harm. That's not anger. Anger is more of an emotion. Anger is what I experience when my will is thwarted, right? When somebody does something I don't want them to do or something that hurts or I think hurts me, particularly when uh, I think, you know, I've been wrong somehow. Something unjust has been done or has happened to me. But there's a problem with human anger. Our anger is not like God's anger. Almost always with human beings, when my will is thwarted and I think you did it, I want to get you back. It's something called revenge, And it leads to malice almost all the time. That's why James, the brother of Jesus, said everyone should be slow to become angry. Why? He says, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. There's a certain kind of life that God desires for us, and it won't be found in places where anger lives and dwells. Human anger produces this sense of this sense inside me that, you know what, I'm right and you're wrong. <laughs> I'm superior to you. Can't you see how you're wrong? I'm better than you. I'm a victim. Can't you see how you've wronged me? It's kind of why we enjoy anger. Part of why it's so dangerous and so hard to get rid of is we actually like being angry often. We like playing the victim. As a victim, I deserve sympathy, right? As a victim, I get to retaliate against you. I should be allowed to get even. And this is why anger can be so incredibly irrational, often is so irrational. People do the craziest things in anger. Take a look. That's what y'all wanted to do, wasn't it? Is grab that phone out of her hand and slap it on the ground. <laughs> Anger's irrational. Uh, it's irrational in us, but God is not us. His anger is never, ever irrational. God does do anger, but God doesn't do mean. God does anger, but he doesn't do malice. Here's another story about God's anger in the Bible. God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and deliver his people. It's at the burning bush. You remember this conversation that they have? It's in Exodus chapter four. 
And uh, God says, <clears throat> excuse me, says, I want to free my people, Moses. I'm going to send you and you're going to deliver them. And Moses just keeps putting God off, pushing God away. Moses says, yeah, you know, I don't want to do it. Uh, uh, you know, wh who, who am I? Why should I have this honor? And God says, it doesn't matter who you are. I'm going to be with you. And then Moses says, well, who are you? I mean, I would need to be able to tell them who sent me. And God says, well, tell them I am who I am sent you. And then Moses says, well, you know, they're not going to believe me. And God says, well, don't worry. I'll give you some signs, some miracles miracles to perform. They will believe you. And Moses says, you know, I'm not a good talker. I don't think I should do this. And God says, well, you know, I made your talker. I can help you talk. I can help you say what you need to say. Moses says, no, literally says, no, send somebody else, he says. And then, the, and then we read this, Exodus 4, 14. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. God's angry. His anger is burning. So what does God do? Does he smite him? Does he hurt him? Does God play the victim and want revenge? He wants to get even with Moses who's not obeying, not listening, not doing what he wants him to do? If you read the story, what you discover is God mercifully sends Aaron, Moses' brother, along with him to be a spokespiece for Moses. And God does amazing things through Moses and through Aaron to release his people from bondage in Egypt. God does anger. But God doesn't do malice. God does not do mean or evil. Now, something else that's important to understand is the connection between love and anger, because there is one. You see, God is a person, and therefore God loves. He wants to be loved. God feels things deeply, and anger is connected to this thing of love. C.S. Lewis observed this, a great observation. He says, anger is the fluid that love bleeds when you cut it. What a picture. What a picture. He's saying good anger is what should happen when love is injured. There's such a thing as good anger. Sometimes we should get angry. There's a story told by a pilot about a flight from New York to Florida. It's an interesting story. An elderly couple is getting on board the plane, and they're kind of shuffling, you know, like Holly and I. They kind of <laughs> shuffle, and, and, you know, there's a guy behind them who is just a jerk. He's just being a complete jerk. And out loud, he's saying rude, obnoxious things. He's annoyed that they're in front of him, that they're taking so long and going so slow. Very filled up with his own sense of self-importance, huffing and puffing. Oh, you know, you've seen this happen before. You've observed it. Hope you haven't done it. But it turns out he ends up sitting right in front of them on the plane. And all during the flight, this guy is rude to the flight attendants, rude to everybody around them. When they bring the meal, this guy sends his meal back twice just complaining very vociferously, very loudly about how disgusted he is with the service on this flight. And uh, after he sends his meal back the second time, he's so disgusted, he kind of pushes that button on the side, you know, and he slams his seat back as hard as he can. And all the food and drink spills on the dress of this elderly woman who's seated just literally right behind him. Everybody who's observing this, which is everybody around, because he's not being quiet about it all, is just, you know, aghast at what's going on. Can't believe what he's now just done. The flight attendant comes, is apologizing to the elderly couple, trying to help the lady clean up her dress and so. And the old guy uh, accompanying this elderly lady actually says and explains they're on their 50th wedding anniversary trip. They've never been on a plane before. And uh, this they explained they'd been saving money and this is really special to them that they get to do this. And the stewardess, as you can imagine, as any of us would feel, it just feels terrible for them. 
brings him a bottle of champagne, which the elderly gentleman takes and uncorks. And as he's standing up and uncorking this and looking at his wife, he just reaches over the seat in front of him and pours it all over the guy sitting in front of his wife. (laughs) And everybody, everybody in the whole section of the plane starts applauding, right? Just starts applauding. That's great. Because once in a while, you see, something happens that somebody ought to get angry about. Am I right? And if you think about our world, how often does somebody get mistreated in our world? How often does one person persecute another person or one people persecute another people? How often does an innocent person get ripped off or an elderly person get abused? How often does an innocent person get gunned down? How often do little babies get abused? How often do people get trafficked as if they're sexually trafficked, as if they're just an object of some kind with no value whatsoever? So you tell me, what kind of God would God be if he could look at our world every single moment of every single day and just go, well, you know, it's just how life is. You see, if God is a good God, then he ought to get angry. And here's the good news. The Bible says he does. He gets good and angry at evil, at sin, at wrong, in us, and in the world, but he doesn't do malice. He doesn't do sin. Now, there's an implication to this, of course, for us. You know, when we get angry, what do we do with our anger? Because our anger is not like God's anger. Well, the Bible says we need to bring our anger to God. And this is why Paul says to the church in Ephesus, in your anger, you know, he says, do not sin. Notice he doesn't say, don't ever get angry because we're going to get angry. The question is, what do we do with it when we get angry? In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. You see, it's not God who gets a foothold in our anger. It's actually the devil. If you want to give him a a, a lever, a handle, an opportunity in your life to do destructive things, just hold on to anger. Just let it fester. Let it grow. Don't deal with it the way God says to deal with it. Don't take it to God. And what this all means for you and me is, again, we need to learn to surrender our anger to a God who can be angry without sin. Because only God, you see, can handle anger. And, you know, here's something I've discovered about myself over the years. I have a lot of anger. Um, It's funny. Life kind of builds anger into us. Things frustrate us. People frustrate us and disappoint us. You know, we don't get what we think we deserve. How many here believe that you deserve to win that big lottery pot? Not that. Yeah, but you didn't, did you? Eh, neither did I. And I'm angry. You know, we use it. Some of us typically explode in anger. We do destructive things. We say destructive things. Wish we could take it back, but we can't. But there's other ways, you know, to project anger and to deal with anger that are equally destructive. They're not explosive. They're kind of passive ways, pouting kinds of ways, playing the victim, passive aggressiveness, one way to process anger that's not healthy, avoidance kind of ways, freezing other people out of your lives, bad ways to handle anger. But you see, there is this amazing thing that God has given us to help us manage anger, 
and it's called forgiveness. Forgiveness happens when I bring my anger to the cross. The cross is where God's anger at sin and God's love for sinners intersect. They intersect at the cross. And the results there are forgiveness. Forgiveness can heal the malice that anger unleashes inside me. Forgiveness can heal that. And understand forgiveness is what God gives to you and to me each and every single day relentlessly. The cross, too, is proof that God is not mad at me. Do you know how many people live with a, this nagging sensation that God must just be angry at them all the time because they blew it today and they blew it yesterday and they're going to blow it again tomorrow and they just keep blowing it? Man, he must be angry at me. I would be angry at me. But friends, think about it. The cross is proof that God is not angry at you or me. It's a good thing that God gets angry at sin. He got so angry about it that he eradicated it on the cross through his son, Jesus. And then he invites me to bring my anger and my brokenness and my fallacies that, and my failures that, I, that happen to me every single day. And he just says, Dwayne, would you bring those to the cross? Bring them to me. And when I do, I discover a God who loves me relentlessly. The cross is proof of that love and evidence of that forgiveness. The cross is proof that God wants to do by you and by me the very best that can be done. That is just who our God is. And so he invites us each and every day, come to me, come to me. Bring your brokenness, bring your sin, bring your anger, whatever it is that's going on inside you, bring that to me, and I can lead you to a place where you can forgive and where you can experience the unbelievable power of forgiveness. Pray with me. Father God, we, uh, many of us sit here and we think of your forgiveness and your grace and your mercies are new every morning to us. And, and Father, we just lay hold of that because what else can we do? We continue to, to fail, we continue to sin, but God, we find fresh new mercies every morning. And we find them at the cross. We find them in the life and the work of Jesus. I pray for anyone here this morning, God, who may not have discovered the greatness of the gift of mercy and grace and forgiveness in Jesus. I pray, God, that if there are misconceptions, deadly misconceptions, keeping people from embracing Jesus by faith, I pray, God, you would eradicate those and do away with those and call them into deeper places of relationship and to love and to faith and to trust in you. God, give us the, the wisdom and the grace we need so that when we open your word and we read it, in, even when we read puzzling passages, give us the grace we need to get the cultural context, the background, the information we need to, to rightly understand who you are. We're asking God in this series, as we explore some deadly misconceptions, we're asking God that we as a congregation would get to know you better and more clearly so that the work of transformation in us could happen more deeply. This we pray in the name of Jesus, our King, Amen.